The Return of the Carbon Storm, Episode 61. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with myself. So this episode, I'm being a bit lazy this week. I just gave this presentation last night for our executive MBA at Central European University. It was recruitment night. So what I did was resurrected a presentation I gave back in December and actually was also a previous episode here on the podcast. I discussed the carbon storm of 2021 in episode 39. Last night I reviewed uh, the presentation and I updated it because now certainly we're not just in a high commodities market, we're not just in a high LNG market, we're not constrained on the supply chain just because of COVID and the global changes we had uh, up to the fall of 2021. Now we have war in Europe. And so this is what I tried to do in this episode is update this idea of the carbon storm as countries attempt to transition towards a clean energy system, a sustainable energy system that doesn't have fossil fuels in it or a limited amount. Essentially, we'll say a net zero. We can play with the numbers some other time. A net zero by 2050. So this episode, I describe the changes that we had, we saw in the fall. It's very interesting to, to reflect back and to look back at the high prices and how it seemed to be really bad. And then how things actually just got a lot worse. And, and then I describe towards the end, is there any solution? But mainly I focus and I discuss in this episode about the risks and the risk assessments. And I provide a, a review of an article I wrote over 10 years ago. In 2012, it was published. And mainly that came out of my research on shale gas in the U European Union and the United States and how and why shale gas was perceived as a solution, but also what were the risks associated with that and how more broadly do we create a post-carbon world with institutions utilizing governance and regulation to ensure that we move towards a post-carbon future. And in that, I go through these types of risks. I'll put a, a link in the show notes for this article I wrote. So this episode is really a reflection on the carbon storm of 2021. You can, I'll link to that. You can listen to that. Really, a energy shortages at the time that the world was playing with. Uh, the high prices and how things have gotten worse since the war in Ukraine. And maybe I don't end the episode on positive note because the more we get into this, um, yeah, maybe there's no positive short-term gain for the world because we're going to have to suffer through high food prices, high energy prices, certainly for the next few months and probably longer. But the only solution it's more and more apparent. Uh, there was a question in the Q&A afterwards that I didn't record. But the, the, the solution is just doubling down, like the politicians say, on this energy transition and renewables, but also it's much more about energy efficiency. But all this stuff is medium to long term. There's no quick fix to any of this. And yeah, we have to deal with higher prices, higher commodity prices, which means these renewable technologies, the technologies we need like insulation windows these are all going to cost more money as well and let's see how this plays out i'm still trying to make sense of it as i mentioned in in the discussion so listen in 
on my presentation, and I hope you enjoy it. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. And now for this week's episode. I'm going to record this just so everyone knows. I also do a podcast at My Energy 2050. And if I'm really lazy this week, I'll, I'll just put out this instead of uh, interview, which I also do. So I also suggest checking out my website. But um, let me, I have to be very professorial and figure out how to share my screen before I get going here. Okay, here we go. I managed to do it. And I guess I'm going to make it bigger. Here we go. All right. And I also see, okay, everything is set up. Uh, after, I would say, over two years of this pandemic, I think that's the first time I ever had this flawless. So good to see so many people. I can't unfortunately see you, but uh, and also uh, my apologies. I was supposed to be in London this week and doing this in person. I was definitely looking forward to that, but we had COVID enter the family, so other arrangements had to be made. But as we can see, we are in what, like at least three, four cities. So this is really fantastic and it speaks to the power of the internet and maybe even I'll throw in some innovation there and, and everything. And what I'll be talking about is, is I've slightly uh, also changed the title. Um, is called The Carbon Storm in a Time of War, Energy Shortages and High Prices. So this is, the I would say, one of the best things about giving presentations is that you, of course, um, not, not being lazy, but you bring out old presentations you gave, refine them and present them again. And this is exactly what I'm doing. Uh, I gave a similar presentation back in December, but of course we know the tragic uh, circumstances in Ukraine and how this has actually affected the energy prices. But this was what I was speaking about back in December and, and I'll go over that. So yes, I, I just want to point out, I'm associate professor in economics business, also the Department of Environmental Science and Policy. And right now I'm doing, I'm a senior research fellow at Chatham House uh, in, in the UK and really looking at some of the issues we're talking about tonight, the, the high energy prices in Europe and the geopolitical significance of that. I won't go into too much geopolitics, but rather about the risks and, and the long time frame that has led up to the point where we are right now. Um, just a bit of a, of a plug, I did write a book called Energy Cultures, uh, Technology, Justice and Geopolitics in Eastern Europe. Uh, the outline for tonight are what are the risks, the carbon storm, I'm going to define that and go into that, and prior prioritizing risks. And before we get started here, let's see, I have to get you guys there, maybe i move you down here. Uh, I just want to show how relevant my book is and my research, because here, it, this is the political um, article that's come, come out recently, and there's a discussion about Lithuania and how Lithuania is a nice case study in moving away from Russian gas. And it's actually one of the case studies that I have in my book, which I did research for, I think it was 2018, I started researching this. So it's, it's definitely in, in the book and already outlined. And here, whoops, wait, this is the best picture. Here's me on the, on the, the bridge of this ship. So I actually was able to do a tour. So I would just say one reason, let me tie into the EMBA, why it's important to be in person is because you really benefit by the in-person experience. And I do this through my research as well. Uh, it's really important to, to, um, 
to travel and to meet people and to really understand. This is one reason I call it energy cultures, because it's through this experience that you understand a country and you understand a topic. It's, it's very important. Okay, so uh, what I like to do and frame tonight's discussion is actually a really a very relevant um, t uh, question. And actually, I got this from my brother. He actually has an MBA and he works for an international company. And I won't say which one, but he sent me this uh, message uh, back in the fall of 2021. And I think this is a relevant uh, background for everybody here, just based on his engineering. He's an engineer and he has an MBA. <clears throat> And he has to deal with these issues. And I, I think there's probably people in the audience that have similar questions as well. And so his question to me was, so our supply chain in China is essentially at a reduced capacity due to shortages of electricity. We are hearing it's primarily coal, but also natural gas. Meanwhile, natural gas prices in Europe are skyrocketing. And he was quite concerned, of course. Uh, is this a readily solvable problem or are we headed someplace dire? And I, I think looking now back and knowing where we are right now, we are someplace dire, but no one even back in the fall of 2021 could have predicted what was going to happen. So what I'm going to do is not just tell you about this LNG ship and show you my, my foresight in it, but it got me thinking about an article I wrote over 10 years ago, or it was published 10 years ago. And where I was looking at the risks in the European Union, particularly around shale gas and this whole effort of creating institutions, for example, like the emission trading scheme that, that um, sets the price of carbon emissions in, in the European Union. And then also um, how, how this has changed over time. And in this article, I actually came up with two sets of risks and these not... Uh, Totally original. I, I drew on a bunch of sources, but I but I find them to very be very relevant and understand what's going on nowadays. And I won't go through all these and, and list them. Uh, we're just short on time, basically. But uh, you can see that these contractual risks. These are the types of risks that actually exist in in contracts uh, between maybe a wind farm developer or a, a gas company and their industrial client. And so these types of risks are assessed and usually in some cases they're hedged or how do you how do you find an alternative supply, backup supplier, for example, if you always need gas uh, in your facility. So these are real risks that companies deal with, fuel price risks, supply risk, demand risk, performance risk. And, and often I would say the discussion about these risks in the past was really about how does uh, renewable energy play a part and this was where the concentration was at, more or less, in the past, let's say, 10, 20 years. Um, we also have larger types of risks, and these are called regime risks. And these, in a very simple manner, break down to different types of risks. And these are get a bit more, um, get, get a bit more uh, challenging uh, for a company to understand and to deal with, but there's definitely there, for example, regulatory risk. So we understand maybe car emissions and how does a car company understand how, which way these emission standards are going to go or which requirements for electric vehicles, for example, in their fleet will they have to meet? So these regulatory risks and how a company deals with them and giving the foresight to handle them as they come, it's very important as well. 
And then these are broken down to other areas like technology, institutions, so being forced to go in a certain direction, even though it might be wiser to go into another way. So there, there's quite a lot of different risks. And I just want to point out down at the bottom here, geopolitical risks. And of course, some of these risks are out of the control of companies. They may be even out of the control of the state, but they have to be considered and understood. And I would just say where we are in this world right now, it's beyond anyone's forecasts or any comprehension that, that Europe uh, would be in a, in a time of war. And we would have such high energy prices. And this is maybe uh, giving this presentation tonight is also kind of a process I go through in trying to figure it out and trying to come up with an answer. So let me just um, go through some of these things. And what, what I labeled this in the fall when my brother asked me this question, because it was very relevant them, is it's kind of like a carbon storm and there's some elements in there. But what we're going to look at is fossil fuels, renewables, and how does, how does weathering the risk uh, play a part? And essentially, it kind of boils down to, in, in a very simple way, is, is a carbon problem, okay? So we got fire here, but it, there's carbon there. And this actually occurred last fall, or actually even over the summertime, um, where, and when we think about the geopolitical, geopolitical risks, these are definitely there because China, for example, stopped uh, importing Australian coal over, we'll just say political considerations and political comments, okay? And, and this has actually, this actually caused lots of problems in China for their fuel supply. They thought it wouldn't be a problem and they were going to go even more green, but actually we can see from this chart that there was a shift. Actually, this is a bad slide because you can't see where. <laughs> Basically, uh, we, we have, uh, it's, a, it's a picture of, uh, China, of Australia's coal going down and down and down and being replaced by other sources here. So, um, but we also have the high natural gas price that, and this is only going to um, about, this is about July, about August, of 21, okay, and we can start to see that, oh, I got these controls in the way, there was already a 535% increase in one year in natural gas prices from January 19th, okay, we had, uh, there was actually pre-COVID then, to August or so of uh, July 21, and I have an updated chart here, so I'm not being lazy, but let's just look at this. So already, when we talk about this carbon storm and this effort, it was one reason China was importing so much gas. There were uh, problems in South America, and they had to import even more gas. And so overall, when we think of this LNG ship that we saw at the beginning, this is how they move gas in a very flexible manner around the world. It's a global shipping network of moving gas around. And there's only so many ships, and there's only so many ports. So there's a limited capacity. And so we start to see this when demand increases because, for example, in Europe, there wasn't enough gas and they had to try to buy more and more LNG and there was a lot of competition going on. And this is all pre-war. Let's see here. Okay. And of course, uh, oil, for those that own a car uh, or not, or just aware of it, we also see this dramatic change in, in time as well. And there's a bit of a crash, of course, and it goes up. And uh, this is also a dramatic change already, even before this war begins. So I think it's really important to reflect back on how the markets were going. And, and a lot of times people were blaming and saying, oh, this is because 
uh, we're going to we're producing more renewable energy and we're making a switch. And therefore, the oil companies, for example, are not investing enough. And this is absolutely true. So investments in the oil sector are down 50%. And this is even before the past few months. This was the past year or so, even longer than that. Because there's no point in, in I would say, there's limited uh, potential for an oil company to invest uh, into more infrastructure, into new fields, if they're not sure the demand is going to be there in a few years' time especially as we roll out more and more renewable energy. So what, what this, actually, I just spoke with an oil and gas executive last week, and he says really what this shows, there is enough supply, just the market's de demonstrating there's a lot of uncertainty, and that's why one reason for him the, the prices are so high. And, of course, what's the final user? Where is the final user? And this is the, the industry, of course, all of us, I think, can feel the, depends which country you live in, uh, can feel the higher gas prices, electricity prices in the homes. And this is actually a really interesting discussion to have. But for tonight, I'm just focused on the industry. And we can already see in 2021 uh, that large uh, production units were already being cut in Europe's um, and aluminum and other and the commodities that go into produce, like bauxite, that go into producing aluminum, were in short supply. So not only did we have a uh, energy supply crisis in oil and gas, or a crisis in the market at high prices, but also we had problems being these com key um, res resources being delivered uh, because of the supply chain problems, and a lot of this effort, um, just a lot of this effort in trying to straighten out the market uh, is still not possible, okay? So, and now we have a war, of course, in Russia, and so the supply becomes even more concerning, basically. And, okay, we have, this is a very nice article, it's just published in the uh, Financial Times over the weekend, and uh, here you can start to see where in Europe the, are the countries that use the most Russian supply? So for those that don't know, these, these countries are essentially supplied from, uh, from Russia with uh, natural gas pipelines, large pipelines that go across the continent and then have been built since the 1970s. And the whole idea in this kind of network of gas through Europe is this idea of interdependency. And that if we have interdependency in the European Union, if we have interdependency with our neighbors, that's North Africa, that's Russia, that's certainly Norway, then we're integrated and this whole, I would say, international relations theory of interdependence would ensure peace and security in Europe. Certainly this is the founding idea of the European Union with the coal and the steel community, by Europe integrating its um, its manufacturing base and its energy base together, it has ensured and has created tremendous economic growth and peace and security in Europe. But of course, maybe for some countries along the way, this no longer, this framing no longer works. And certainly this is the case for Russia. And we could go on a whole geopolitical debate, but I just want to kind of keep this kind of uh, focused on the changes and the high prices and the risks that are being exposed right now, because definitely there, there was a lot of risk taking under the idea that we would always have peace and security in Europe or one supplier could be, um, could be replaced by other supplies, which is not the case. 
And so now we're even higher. We're even in a worse position than we were in the fall. And here's my updated charts on this. And we start to see from uh, May 2021, and you don't need to know a lot of uh, things about um, gas pricing or what all these things mean, but just think here, it was, uh, let's just say $7, okay? And now it's at $42, okay? So you can imagine how industry is responding and the issues that go into this. There's, there's this tremendous cost increase over time that some com companies may have been able to respond in certain ways, but other ones have had certainly a huge problem uh, dealing with, and most are all just having problems with this. And here's the, the chart for, for oil, for example, where I, I put the, uh, uh, here we go, $39 a barrel down here in October of 2020. And then now we are at about $104 a barrel today. And this is all kind of very general um, market stuff. We can get very specific what, which markets this is. But, but certainly the jump in oil prices, as we can see in the United States with Biden releasing oil from the strategic reserves has political consequences as well. And the whole push in the European Union to move away and to stop the flow of oil from Russia is a big on the big agenda. And certainly just like we have on the gas dependency here, there's a large dependency on Russian oil, particularly Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, which get almost, not, we'll just say 90% or so of their oil by pipeline from Russia. So replacing this with just uh, on ships is, is technically possible, but it has big ramifications. It's one of the reasons diesel right now is so expensive in some countries, because when the refinery mix changes because the oil is a different blend or a different type of oil from a different region of the world. They have to change what actually is the output from that refinery. So the, it has these cascading effects um, based on these geopolitical situations. And I would just say maybe this is too much energy for you, but my whole focus is about energy and how I see the world is all like through this energy lens. So yeah. And but definitely for industry as a whole, and the impact is tremendous. This is why I love the energy sector, because it takes in so many different areas. And here's a, a recent, I think today's headline in the, in the Financial Times, is worst crisis since the Second World War, Germany prepares for a Russian gas embargo. So yeah, one reason for the high gas prices also is the uncertainty. What if, uh, for example, a compressor station in Donbass is blown up by accident by the Russians or the Ukrainians, because this is actually a, a a real possibility mentioned to me by someone in the, in the gas sector. And, uh, or uh, for example, there's a big fight over the ruble, uh, payment in gas in the ruble rather than in Euro for European customers. And what if Russia just turns off the gas? So this could really have fundamental economic consequences and social consequences as factories shut down and people lose their jobs. So there's a worst case and a bad case scenario and not many Good cases, and actually, one of the, one of the things I'm doing at Chatham House right now is looking at uh, maybe what I don't want to say what good can come of this, but how how what are the solutions? And in the short term, there's not many solutions, but it's over the medium and longer term solutions that are really there. And this risk assessment is helping me organize, looking at how do we dampen down these risks over the long term. And certainly, sorry, I'm having trouble move this along. Certainly over the long term, the solution is, yes, renewables, right? And energy efficiency. So um, 
yeah, so let me skip over that and just say, so one of the problems and one of the solutions that being is being proposed is that we switch to more renewables and faster. But anyone that's active in industry right now know that there's more supply chain problems in, in the fall. These are just accumulating and accumulating. You can just even look at the lockdown in Shanghai and the problems with shipping out of China and the factories are not working in China now, many, many factories. And so it's really adding to the price and the challenges of even those that are producing, we could say wind turbines, heat pumps are always in the news, solar panels. And so the price of everything is increasing dramatically. And in one sense, it, the, the, the data is not so much out there, uh, even in, yeah, there's, the, there's not a lot of data to understand how the, the, the higher commodity prices are affecting the price of renewables, but this is what I was the least able to find on the internet for right now was supply issues and connect interconnection interconnection process driving. So there's a lot of kind of this is purchase um, purchasing power um, area of price volatility. Basically, it's a survey of managers. And their biggest challenge right now, and this was only at the end of 2021 Q4, was procurement and supply chain challenges, commodity prices, you can see, are really huge challenges. And I would imagine it's just gotten worse since then. So when we try to find solutions, then it's really important to understand these risks, fuel price risks, fuel supply risk, demand risk. And the whole idea is now there's no easy solutions. But we have to go back, we have to reassess these risks, and we have to find the, the solutions to make these types of things. Because let me point this out. We have these contracts risks, right? So these are, in, in, this is like for lawyers, right? So these are in the contracts. These are boring things, kind of. Uh, depends your area. Okay, and then we have the regime risks. And the regime risks are much bigger. Okay, so these are the geopolitical ones. These are we could say administrative, like how many administrators work in a certain licensing agency for building wind farms. Um, so, so these types of also kind of the minutia of actually rolling out a greener energy system are very important. And maybe I'll go back to these technological lock-in, institutional lock-in. It's how do we change the institutions? How do we change the technology fast enough, right? So actually, is it really a good idea to be build more LNG facilities, bring in more gas when gas is a geopolitical weapon for some countries? So it, it, it demonstrates that we are locked into a certain type of resource, a certain type of technology, and maybe we should actually unlock ourselves from that type of technology and have a new type of technology like solar, wind, and we can get into energy storage. Uh, but there's a lot that needs to be done in moving us to a new energy system. So con the conclusion here from my brother again is that, so our supply chain in China is essentially at a reduced capacity due to shortage of electricity. I think there's enough electricity now from my here in China, but still it's more or less the supply chains that are causing even more problems. And of course, uh, the use of coal, which is being increased because there's a shortage of natural gas. And there's a lot of, and also just, we could say the, the high price of natural gas compared to coal, which is much cheaper to be used. Um, yeah, so not, not just natural gas, but oil things. So is this readily solvable problem or are we headed someplace dire? I'll just say we're headed someplace dire in the short term. I, I don't like to sugarcoat things. So 
final conclusion here. What is the carbon storm? I think my revision here is that everything has really come together in, in a dramatically realistic, a realist way with geopolitics, pandemic, supply chain problems. And of course, we can see just in inflation, go to the grocery store and see how much more you pay for your eggs, your milk, for basic things. Um, and of course, I didn't even talk about climate change and how do we solve climate change. But the solution to get us out of this carbon storm is simply taking the pain at the beginning and understand we're going to get rid of fossil fuels and we have to actually deploy more renewables and maybe electric cars are not even a solution actually, but I'll leave that for another day. But we as, let me, maybe you can see my thing here. There's a, here, let me, let me, let me make my point is that I put this in a really nice way, lack of direct and consumer engagement to ease the energy transition that actually all of us have to invest in and do our part for energy efficiency. This is households, this is companies, this is the only solution, this is the cheapest solution, it creates the most jobs, there's all the effort, uh, uh, evidence out there, there's everything that just investing in energy efficiency goes a long, long way. But it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not easy because, for example, people talk about heat pumps in a home. But actually, the best way to do is insulate the home, change the windows first, make it energy efficient, and then figure out actually how much heat do you actually need in that home, right? So you might not be, need a big heat pump at all, maybe a small one, but you have to do your main things. And of course, it takes time. It takes a whole new supply chain to produce those materials, to produce those technologies. So the overall, there's a lot of political pressure uh, that has to pay and has to be done. And maybe I skip over here. So what should we do? It's a new world. That's, that's what I'm saying. The, the old world or old paradigms of thinking, even in this idea of interdependency, dependency, this is one of my key research areas right now is demonstrating how interdependency didn't work out. I mean, it certainly works out in some ways, but there was over assumptions that interdependency was good. Um, so it's a time for new risk assessment. We definitely have to go back and look again because we have new values. We have new valuations. Technology and resources have different ROIs, return on investments. And yeah, we have to create space to slow down the transition in the short term. So some say, yeah, we actually need to use more coal, but I'll let others debate that. But we have to reorientate supply lines, bring everything much more local. There's a lot of sustainability things that have to happen. And we have to like work with partners and determine who our partners are that are on the sustainability journey. And that's my presentation. Thank you. And I'm open to any questions or anything you might have. That was my presentation. And now we had a Q&A session afterwards. And this is the session afterwards with me answering their questions. So have a listen. And hopefully, this part is also useful for you. Yeah, um, so I, I, I don't know exactly how much uh, fertilizer Europe uh, imports, how much is made outside of it, for example, even Ukraine, uh, that, that's, uh, they do produce it there. Um, but it, maybe I can shift it slightly in looking at uh, the food security issue as well. And this, it's, basically, it's an energy and food nexus. And one of the things actually I want to do more at CEU on is this energy and food security, because now it's very tightly linked. 
And I, and I, what I would say is, yeah, we are. In, I'm, I'm trying to answer your question in a non-technical way. So let me say that. So we are in a new paradigm because, right, fertilizer uh, produced from gas is is essential. So the ammonia that goes to this. A production process to create the fertilizer for the, the, those that don't know. And so it relies on large quantities of gas. And the cheapest way to do that is like pipeline gas, usually from Russia for the European market. I'll just say that. And because, for example, Lithuania, they have a large fertilizer producer there that has the ability to import with the LNG, but also essentially relies on the Russian gas. And if they cut off the gas, which they have, then they rely on the LNG, which is way, way, way more expensive. And so then that cost, of course, has to be uh, moved on. And one of, one of the, now that I'm talking about it, it comes to mind that actually fertilizer producers have shut down. They've just stopped making fertilizer because the cost of the gas was so much that the, they, they assumed that the farmers wouldn't pay for that fertilizer. So this is definitely a food security issue because if you don't have, and you know, we live in wealthy countries, so probably our farmers can, can afford it. But certainly India, this is one reason India has not broken ties with, with Russia, is because it really does rely on, on fertilizer to feed its population. And so in developing countries, um, these issues that I raise here are even more of an issue. And maybe yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. No, it's a great question. And... I would say maybe it, it's shifting the political momentum. I don't think it's sucking it because the, the only solution to our current energy crisis, which I would say is a political problem, it's a social problem, it's many, many problems, but of course the politicians are attempting to address it. And in some countries it's just direct sending money, like in the UK, here, just put this towards your energy bill or capping prices. So the energy, high energy prices are a political problem. and. What the politicians are trying to do is figure a way out of this. And it's only the politicians that are going to be able to figure a way out of this because a lot of investment has to occur to change the energy system. And that can only come from government because there's so much volatility. I mean, we could go back to the risks and, and list those categories, but the private sector are... The private sector does, for example, in oil companies and gas companies, particularly gas companies in the United States, which hydraulic fracturing was used in the past to really keep the price of gas low, they don't even want to invest. <laughs> even though, according to the current market conditions, they would make money and a lot of money, but they're not even willing to invest their money right now because what they don't know, it's this uncertainty about the environmental um environmental regulations, and I don't, I don't want to blame the environment, but it's this energy transition that we're going through, and there are 2030 goals, or 2050 goals, and they're, I mean, a company's not going to invest if we're going to not use gas in 10 years' time, and so they're just not going to make that investment. So somehow, governments have to set, this is where we get into the um, lock-in and, and technological lock-in, institutional lock-in, that the incentives to invest in certain areas, and I'm not saying it has to be oil and gas, I think that's actually just a dead end, but the investments have to go into renewables, have to go into energy efficiency, but there's a lot of supply chain problems and the high commodity prices are going to make these investments even more costly. So, I mean, it's been amazing to see that solar prices and wind power prices have dropped dramatically, even much more than anyone ever predicted. So now they're actually very competitive in some place, even more competitive 
than against gas. And they're certainly more competitive and cost less than, than coal-fired power plants. So even on a cost, cost basis, renewables work out better. But it's the speed of the transition that has to go, and there's so much uncertainty that greater certainty in which investments to go with need, needs to be done. And I don't have all the technical answers of how, how to do that, but it definitely needs to occur. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting-edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.